Well, let's turn to Genesis chapter 8. And as I was thinking about what we've been covering so far, I, I thought about the fact that the historical books of the Bible, like Genesis, it's not just that the author you know, wrote kind of a chronological event, of, uh, a chronological series of events that happens. That's how it looks, but the Holy Spirit led each author to choose which events to focus on and what aspects of those events to emphasize, all in order to teach us crucial truths about God, crucial truths about ourselves, and crucial truths about our world. And that's what we've seen in Genesis, haven't we? Think about it. Genesis 1 and 2, we've seen God displayed to us as infinitely powerful, creates a, a universe and a beautiful earth, so he's infinitely powerful, perfectly good, just the goodness of his heart overflowing, and flawlessly wise, he creates Adam and Eve, he places them on earth in the Garden of Eden, he gives them the joy of knowing him, God's displayed as good, wise, powerful, beautiful, loving God. Genesis 1 and 2. But then in Genesis 3, something horrifying happens. God had said to Adam and Eve, to keep enjoying this forever, all you need to do is just don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which means don't think you can decide for yourself what's good and evil. Trust me, your creator who made you. Trust me to know what's good and evil. That's all they had to do. But in Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve have become proud. They've decided that they want to make their own choices in terms of what's good and evil. And so they sin against God, they turn their backs against God, and as a result, God's curse and judgment comes upon the world. Sin enters the world along with God's curse and judgment. Now, also in chapter 3, what verse is it in? Verse 15, okay, let's work on that. The most amazing promise in Genesis, the first gospel promise in the Bible, in the very first book of the Bible, in the third chapter of the Bible, right in the same chapter where sin enters the world, God promises that through one of Eve's offspring, through Eve's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchild, God is going to crush Satan and sin, destroy sin and Satan, and that's a prophecy of Jesus. And so in the very first book of the Bible, the third chapter, Jesus the Messiah is prophesied because the cross had been planned from before the foundation of the world. And so it's promised right there. So sin and Satan will be destroyed, and because of what Jesus would do on the cross... In Genesis 3.15, God promises he will save people. People who are enslaved in sin, people who don't want God, people who are running away from God like all of us were. God in his mercy because of what Jesus will do is going to reach down from heaven and he changes our hearts, takes out our hearts of stone, gives us hearts of flesh, and in response, we confess our sin, we repent, we put our trust in God, we're forgiven, we're reconciled to God, we're saved, we're redeemed, and we know God's love, we're free from the curse, no condemnation forever. That's the promise of Genesis 3.15. So, then chapter 4, bad news. We see sin intensifying. Remember, Cain murders Abel. And Lamech murders a young guy who just kind of hit him, murders in response, and he, he's, he's a polygamist, so we see sin intensifying through chapter 4. Chapter 5, there's some good news. 
There's some people who are worshiping God, who are walking with God. But in chapter 6, we see that everyone in the world is sinning against God. Everyone is sinning against God. And it could look like disaster. What happened to God's plan? But the promise of Genesis 3.15 holds. God is faithful. And in great mercy, because of what Jesus would do, God saves Noah, changes his heart. Noah turns to God, confesses his sin. What am I doing? You're glorious. You're beautiful. I trust you. Forgive me. And because of what Jesus would do, Noah was forgiven for his sin. But so God then says to Noah, Noah, I'm going to destroy all the rest of humanity except for you and your family because everyone is sinning. Everyone else, no one's making people sin. People are freely choosing to sin. They're all sinning. To show what sin deserves, I'm going to bring a flood and destroy all of humanity. You build an ark, and in that ark, you and your family and two of every animal will be saved. And we saw last week, Noah obeyed, built the ark. And so at the end of chapter 7, Noah and his family are in the ark. The rain has come for 40 days and 40 nights. Noah and his family are floating on the ark in the middle of the ocean with no land anywhere in sight and no land anywhere. Feel the problem? Okay, so what happens to Noah next? Look at Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. Underline these first four words in your Bible. But God remembered Noah. We're going to come back to that in a moment. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. In the next verses, we read that Noah sent out a raven and then sent out a dove. And finally, it became clear that the earth was dry. So then read verses 15 and 16. Then, Noah, then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. In verses 18 and 19, so Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Remember the first four words in verse 1, but God remembered Noah. The flood had happened, 40 days and 40 nights of rain. They're out there in the middle of the ocean, no land in sight. God remembered Noah and took care of Noah. And I want to stress this because I am sure that some of you, even this last week, have felt like God has forgotten you. Maybe there's a, a prayer that you've been pleading with the Lord to answer for a long time, and he hasn't answered, and you're thinking, God's forgotten me. Maybe there's a difficulty in, in your family with a relationship or a child or a parent or you know, somebody in your extended family, just a painful relational issue, and, and you're thinking, God's forgotten me. Maybe there's work disappointments or financial pressures, or maybe there's medical uh, suffering, illness, sickness going on. 
It's been going on for a long time, and it's easy to think in those times, God has forgotten me. But see, here's the good news. Because you're trusting Jesus Christ, God will never forget you. Because you're trusting Jesus Christ, God is always thinking about you. God's infinite, and so he's able to give you his undivided attention and everybody else who's trusting him, right? So God, right now, this moment, he is giving you his undivided attention. He's loving you. He's caring about you. He's sorrowing with your sorrows, but he's got a plan. Everything is going according to plan. And he is unfolding his wise plan, his loving plan, his beautiful, excellent, joy-bringing plan for you. Great good is coming. So Grace Church, never think that God has forgotten you. Never think that it slipped his mind. He thought, oh my goodness, Steve Fuller, I forgot about him. Oh, what's happened? Never. With each of us, he's giving us, giving you his undivided attention. Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Don't ever think God's forgotten you. So that's the lesson from the first section. Now, that's what God's doing for Noah. He's remembering Noah. He has the waters recede. He has the land become dry. He sends them out of the ark. And how does Noah respond? Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Did you wonder why God had some clean animals, two of every clean animal that were taken? This is why. A burnt offering. Now, what's a burnt offering? All through the Old Testament, God had his people offer burnt offerings as a picture of what Jesus would do on the cross. So here's what would happen. If you were in the Old Testament, one of God's people, and you sinned, what you would do would be that you take a, a lamb, but not just any lamb, a spotless lamb, an unblemished lamb. You would take this lamb to the temple, to the priest, and you'd place the lamb before the priest, and the priest would say, "Now put your hand on the priest's head, on the put your hand on the lamb's head," and you'd put your hand on the lamb's head, and that's a picture of your guilt before God, for your sin, being transferred onto the Lamb. Now, your guilt wasn't really transferred. It's just a picture, but it's a powerful picture because then after that picture of transferring of guilt, the priest would hand you a knife and say, kill your lamb, and you would cut the lamb's throat, and the lamb would die, a picture of the lamb being punished for your guilt. So think about it. All through the Old Testament, thousands of animal sacrifices. Why? To picture what Jesus would do. Remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus in John chapter 1, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Remember that? Because Jesus is the Lamb of God. So God has provided. Remember, the Old Testament sacrifices didn't remove any sin. It was a picture of the one who would remove sin. God provided the Lamb of God, Jesus. And Jesus' death on the cross paid for sin. And God's inviting you. See, all of us, 
We've stood before God and all of us have been guilty before God. All of us. All of us have been guilty and have faced God's judgment. And God's invited all of us. Put your hand on the Lamb of God. Confess your sin. Turn from your sin. Trust Jesus to forgive your sin. And when you do that from the heart, all of your guilt is transferred onto Jesus. No more guilt in you. All transferred onto Jesus. And on the cross, Jesus was slain in your place. Jesus was punished in your place. And so those of you whose hands are on Jesus this morning, not literally or not, but in your heart, you're, Jesus, I'm trusting you. Thank you for your death on the cross. You're my Lord, Jesus. You're my Savior. You're my treasure. You're my love. You're my passion. If your hand is on Jesus, all of your guilt is no longer on you. It was put upon him and already punished in him. But if your hand is not upon Jesus this morning, then your guilt is still upon you. It's as simple as that. If your hand is on Jesus, the guilt has been paid for in Jesus. If your hand is not on Jesus, your guilt is still upon you. But God's calling you this morning. Put your hand on the Lamb of God. Trust Him. Submit your life to Him. And so here, after the flood, Noah would have thought, okay, this is what God does to people who sin. He would have seen very clearly God's justice. And even though Noah had been saved, he knew he wasn't sinless. And so he, he brings a burnt offering before the Lord. We praise you for how you're, you, you, we don't understand it all. We don't get it all yet. We're not seeing the Messiah clearly yet, but we know forgiveness is available. This somehow pictures it. Thank you, God, for forgiveness of sins. Can you see how Noah would want to do that after the flood? Oh, God, thank you for forgiveness of sins. So that's what Noah does in response. Now, how does God respond to this burnt offering? Verses 21 and 22, there's four responses, but the first one in, in verses 21 and 22, God promises to never again bring a flood. Never again. Read verse 21 and 22. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. It's a little puzzling. We're going to come back to that and try to explain how that's a reason. Ne neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now, verse 21 is a little puzzling. I'll never again curse the ground because of man. So no more flood for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Here's what I think God is saying. God is saying, I knew that the flood would not stop people from sinning in future generations. I knew that. I brought the flood to show humanity, here's what sin deserves. Wake up. Wake up. But I know people are going to keep sinning. So if I kept bringing a flood every time people would sin, we'd never make any progress here. So this was to show people what sin deserves. I knew it wouldn't stop people from sinning, but no more flood. There will be judgment at the end of history for everyone who refuses to place their hand upon Jesus and be forgiven. But no more flood upon the face of the earth. That's what God is saying here. Second, 
way God responds to this burnt offering. He repeats the command to fill the earth. Chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, where did we hear that before? So God said to Adam and Eve back in chapter 1, right? So, new beginning, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the flesh of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. In verse 3, God says, you can eat animals. But God doesn't want them to be eating blood separately. Blood is a picture of life. God regards life. Life is a gift from God, so honor blood. Don't eat the blood. But the main point in verse 1 is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. New beginning to Noah and his family. That's the second response God gives. Third, chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. God affirms the value of human life. And for your lifeblood. This is chapter 9, verse 5. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. God made man and woman, God made us, each of us, in his own image. Which means that we belong to God. We belong to God. And only God, therefore, has the right to take life. Because our lives belong to Him. Only God has the right to take life. And God does, we see here, sanction governments operating with the system of justice to take life as capital punishment, as retribution for the taking of life. But the point is that only God has the authority to take life. Taking of life outside of God's authority is murder. Murder. Now, I would guess we all agree that, that murder is wrong. But what I want to mention is that there's, there's two forms of murder that are becoming more and more accepted in some cultures today. Two forms of, of murder. One is abortion. Tragic practice of abortion. Taking of life while it is still in the womb. Now, there are heartbreaking situations where a woman becomes pregnant against her will. Heartbreaking situations. But still, it's not our place to take the life of the baby. It's not our place to do that. Only God has the right to take life. This baby's life should not be taken. And we who love Christ should gather around that woman, support that woman, love that woman, care for that woman. We should be available for adoptions if that's the choice. We adopted our daughter, Anna, at, 
at birth. We met her mother, who when she, we first met her was 14 years old and pregnant with Anna. Amazing young girl. People had been telling her to get an abortion. She refused. And she said she wanted a place for adoption. She picked us. We had a chance to meet her and say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We need to love those who are found in heartbreaking situations, but we must not take the lives of babies. Another form of murder that's being accepted is euthanasia, where we help someone else take their life. Now, again, there are heartbreaking situations where people are suffering medically and dealing with difficult disabilities. And these should make us weep. But they should not take their life. And we should not help them take their life. We should help them. We should do all we can to free them from pain. We should do all we can to help them live with dignity. But it's not our place to take their life. We are made in God's image. Our lives belong to him. Murder is stealing from God something that's his. We must not murder. And so, Grace Church, let's be clear on murder. I'm assuming we are clear on how that's wrong, but let's be clear on abortion and on euthanasia. And let's reach out to people that are struggling. Let's serve people that are struggling. Let's pray. Let's care. Let's help people that are struggling. But here God reaffirms the value of human life. I wonder if, if in Noah's mind as he hears this, he's heard the story of Cain who killed Abel, Lamech who killed the man. Okay, no more murder. And there's now governmental systems to be put in place to, to bring capital punishment when that happens. So here God's bringing his blessing upon the earth. Fourth, one last response. Verses 7 through 17, God repeats his promise to never again bring a flood. With, and here he talks about the rainbow. You're all wondering, where's the rainbow come in? Here it is. Okay, start with verse 11. I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, the rainbow, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So every time you see a rainbow, we all know, you know, water droplets, sun, you know, light, prism, color, okay? That's all true, but see, God did that. God set that up to happen. So every time you see a rainbow, God's saying, remember, no more floods, no more floods. Remember what sin deserves. Judgment is coming, but no more floods. Put your hand on the Lamb of God. Turn from your sin. Put your trust in Jesus. And if you're already doing that, rejoice in your salvation. Every rainbow is God talking to you. No more floods. Okay, so here, this is how God responds to Noah's burnt offering. And so it, it feels like, like a new beginning, right? All of sinful humanity has been destroyed. Just Noah and his family here are going to start over. 
going to multiply, be fruitful, fill the earth. So, so we could wonder at this point, this is good news. Maybe the, sin, the problem of sin has been solved. Maybe there will be no more sin from this point on. Good news. So the readers of Genesis could be thinking that at this point, and that would be a mistake. And Moses wants to make sure we understand that would be a mistake by what he emphasizes next. Tragic development in the story. What does Moses emphasize next? Start in verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan, the Canaanites who ended up living in the promised land. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. The problem of sin has not been solved. Noah sins by getting drunk. Now, God does allow... In the Bible, it's clear that there's nothing wrong with drinking alcohol in moderation. That's clear. It's a matter of conscience. Individual believers make different choices. But there's freedom there for drinking alcohol in moderation. But here's the danger. The danger is when we are looking forward more to that drink after a long day at work than we are about pouring my soul out before the Lord. The Bible doesn't give us a blood alcohol level to decide where, where, where drunkenness is. Okay? Okay, not so. He doesn't do that. But God gives us a heart question to ask What are you seeking for your peace? What are you seeking for your reward at the end of the day? What are you seeking for your joy? It's a heart question. It is dangerous when we're seeking anything except for knowing God in Jesus as our peace, as our joy, as our reward. Anything. And that was Noah's problem, is he was pursuing the peace and the joy and the reward of alcohol to the extent that he drank so much that he fell down unconscious, naked in his tent. So Noah sins. Isn't this shocking that Moses would mention this right after we've got the flood. Noah and his family are free. Burnt offering. God's going to do all these things. New beginning. Sin. You see how the biblical authors, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, they choose events to make points. Sin is not solved yet. And there's another example of sin also. Verse 22. Ham... And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So he saw his father naked in the tent. And the picture you get here is he went outside and said, you'll never believe this. Dad's naked in the tent. Come check this out. This is hysterical. Verse 23. Then Shem and Japheth, they did not respond that way. They took a garment laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's nakedness. So Ham here is sinning by mocking and disrespecting his father. 
Shem and Japheth respond rightly, doing all they can do to honor and safeguard their father's dignity. But Ham mocked and disrespected his father. So the flood has not solved the problem of sin. Do you see how, how Moses is teaching us that by the way he puts these events right next to each other? The flood has not solved the problem of sin. So we can think, oh my goodness, the, the flood came, all sinful people were wiped out. Here's just Noah and his family, righteous Noah, new beginning, be fruitful, be multiply. Sin is still here. We could, we could think, what's going to take care of the problem of sin? And do we know what the answer is? Genesis 3.15, right? If we're reading carefully. And so Moses reminds us of Genesis 3.15 by next describing three prophecies that Noah makes. This is so encouraging. Here, the Holy Spirit gives Noah these three prophecies of what's going to happen in the future. So three prophecies. First, so what does Noah prophesy? First, he prophesies that God will still judge sin. The flood isn't the end of his judgment against sin. He still judges sin. Look at verses 24 and 25. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Now, one of Ham's sons was Canaan. And Canaan was the father of the Canaanites who lived in the promised land. And as a curse, as a judgment against Ham, God allowed the Canaanites to freely choose to pursue sin. And they pursued sin in horrifying ways. One of their religious practices was to burn their babies alive as sacrifices to idols. Horrifying sin. And so as a judgment against Ham, God allowed the Canaanites to, to freely choose to sin, and then God judged them because of their sin by having Israel conquer them and having them be subjugated by Shem and Japheth. Now, just a side note here. Please don't draw the wrong conclusion from this passage. This is not because Ham or the Canaanites are an inferior race. There are no inferior races. How many races are going to have saved people in them in heaven forever? All of them. All of them. We'll see that in Genesis 12. But we see it clearly in Revelation as well. Every nation, every tongue, every tribe. God has created every nation. God loves every nation. God is going to save people from every nation. There are no inferior nations or races. Are we clear? So important. Remember... Remember Rahab, who was saved? Rahab was a Canaanite. Okay? So no inferior races. But as a judgment against Ham, God allows the Canaanites to freely choose sin, and then he brings judgment upon them justly through Israel. So God is going to keep judging sin. That's the first prophecy. Second prophecy. God will be faithful to his promises and save people from their sin. This is so interesting. Verse 26. He, Noah, also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. So the first prophecy had to do with Ham. So this one has to do with Shem. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Okay, the offspring of Shem 
included the people of Israel. People of Israel. And God is going to be the God of Shem, which is fulfilled in the people of Israel becoming the people of God and enjoying God's blessings. So here's a, a prophecy of the people of Shem being God being their people. And that's what actually happens. Not only that, notice Noah blesses the Lord, the God of Shem. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. He doesn't speak blessing to Shem directly, but blessed be God, Lord, the Lord, the God of Shem. And what that sounds like is that God is going to do something amazing through his people, through the, through the people of Israel, through the, the people in the line of Shem. And what is the amazing thing that God does through the line of Shem? He brings the Messiah, Jesus. So the promise of Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled through the line of Shem, and that's what Noah is prophesying here. So this second prophecy shows God's going to be faithful to his promises, and he's going to save people, in the line of Shem at least, from their sin. But then third, not just people in the line of Shem, God's going to save many, 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 many from sin. Verse 27, third prophecy, May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Hmm. And let Canaan be his servants. Okay, Canaan's still being conquered and subjugated here. Then after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. That's the end of chapter 9. And I notice verse 27. God will enlarge the people of Japheth. They will multiply, multiply, multiply. And this large group of people will dwell in the tents of Shem. Now, what did we just learn about the people of Shem? God is their God. So if the people of Japheth are living in the tents of the people whose God is, where God is their God, what's going on here? It, this is a picture of Gentiles being joined to people of Israel who are trusting Jesus the Messiah and forming the church in the New Testament. God is going to save many, many, many people. Japheth is going to enlarge, and I'm going to bring Japheth into the tents of Shem to meet the God of the people of Shem, the God of Israel, the God of Yahweh, through whom the Messiah comes, Jesus Christ. So these three prophecies are there to encourage the reader. Yes, sin is still here, but God is going to continue judging sin. He has a plan for conquering sin's power through the Messiah coming through the line of Shem, and he is going to save many, many people from their sin. So don't be discouraged. Now, here, here's the final application. I believe God wants to bring to us Grace Church through these two chapters. It's easy to be discouraged when we see sin in the world, isn't it? Every day, there's heartbreaking things happening that we hear in the news. We read on the internet. Tragic things taking place. We hear about the refugees from Syria and the persecution of people from all different faiths, and we, we read about wars and about poverty. We see injustice around us. We see oppression around us, and we just see there's, there's a sin. It seems like sometimes everywhere there's sin, and it can become deeply discouraging to us, right? Or you get numb. Don't get numb. Let it make you weep, but we shouldn't be discouraged, because Genesis 3.15 is still in the Bible. Check. It's still there. Noah's three prophecies are still there. 
They've all been fulfilled and are being fulfilled. So here's my encouragement to you. Don't let the presence of sin make you doubt God's promises. We can be so inundated with bad news from what we see and what we read. We've, we've got to take more time where we, we open up the book. We see who God is, right? And just let the Lord strengthen and encourage your heart. So when you get discouraged by sin, understand Jesus Christ is saving a vast number of people that no one can count from every nation and tongue and tribe. He is doing that, and nothing is going to stop him from doing that. It will happen. He will keep us, his people, persevering in faith until the end. He will keep you strong. He will strengthen you, just like Luke preached a couple weeks ago. He will equip us with everything good that we can do his will. He will keep us faithful all the way to the end. When you feel weak, turn to Jesus. He will strengthen you. He will use our lives and our witness and our tears and our love and our prayers to advance his gospel purposes. As weak as you feel, as small as we might feel in this country, he will use us in powerful ways to advance his gospel. So don't let the presence of sin discourage you. He is at work in weak little people like us. That's what he's done all through the Bible. Weak people, weak people, weak people, strong God. Weak people, strong God. And he will finally destroy sin and Satan. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And we will enter the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells to worship God and his holy son Jesus by the Holy Spirit face-to-face, with the joy of knowing him, beholding him forever, and he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Look at, what, look at what's happened. Look at the salvations. Look at what's taken place. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. So don't let sin discourage you, Grace Church. Trust God. His promises are true. His promises are faithful. Trust God, and let's move the gospel ahead. Let's stand together. God, I pray, first of all, for those here who feel like you have forgotten them. And I ask that you bring your power upon them right now, Lord. And that they could see that because of Christ and because they're trusting Christ, they can be completely assured that you are giving them your undivided attention. You are loving them right now. You are caring about them right now. You are working your good and perfect and beautiful plan for them right now. You're not surprised by these difficulties in the mystery of your wisdom and love, the part of your plan to bring great good. And so, Lord, I pray that you would touch the hearts of those who feel like you've forgotten them and that you'd strengthen their faith right now. I pray, Lord, for any here who have been a party to abortion or euthanasia. Lord, I pray that they would see that, yes, it was sin, but that you're inviting them. Put your hand on the Lamb of God transfer the guilt, 
onto the Lamb of God, Jesus. Help them see the cross. Help them see that they can be completely forgiven. That there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I pray that you'd bring comfort to them now. I pray that you'd pour out your love upon them now. I pray that you'd bring assurance of forgiveness and salvation to them right now. Please, Lord, do that, I ask. I pray, Lord, for those who are discouraged by sin around them and in the world. Oh, Lord, let them see your promises. Let them see your faithfulness. Let them see your sovereign power that nothing can thwart your plan and that you will be faithful. You will work. You will save. You will deliver. You will redeem. You will use them. So help them to to rise up, to strengthen weak knees and shaking arms and to pray and love and labor and witness. So do that, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.